Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint Russell. I am absolutely thrilled today. It's not every day that we get to talk to a potential future president of the United States. Gosh, that's weird to even say. <laughs> Without further ado, the great Vivek Ramaswamy. Welcome good in. Good to talk to you, man. How you doing, Clint? I'm good, man. I you you have got to be the hardest working man in politics. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Are, are you worn out yet? Not at all. I mean, I'm not sleeping a ton, but I'm not worn out yet. <laughs> I uh, I'm pretty energized by it, actually. I love it. I love it. Well, I was at uh, at Turning Point this weekend. I, I missed you. I was there on Sunday, but I, I saw the or I watched the the segment that you did and got a very warm welcome. Um, yeah. Quite to the contrary of every other person that's running for president uh, they were mercilessly booed it seems that the the MAGA crowd seems to have uh, some real affinity towards you it, why do you think that is I think it's because I speak the truth about what's actually happened in this country but I also offer very clear specifics about what we're going to do to fix it and I think that you know part of what I'm bringing to the table I don't know is people ask for analogies I think I'm a MAGA candidate combined with the instincts of a Ron Paul with exactly how we reform the U.S. Federal Reserve, how we reform the abuses of a financial system and regulatory overreach. And I think that's a unique combination of marriage that was probably naturally waiting to ha happen, but they're probably both instincts are in my bones. And I think that's proven to be successful so far in this race. Yeah, well, that's music to my ears and, and to my audience's ears. You know, Ron Paul is our is our scion. He's our leader. Um, you you were on with Dave Smith, who's a good friend of mine, a couple of weeks ago, oh, and, and you you guys got you guys got really deep into the Ukraine Russia issue. So I'm I'm gonna let people go check out that episode and spend some time on some other areas of interest. Um, you know, my my audience being primarily libertarian is, and myself obviously being a very hardcore libertarian, I like a ton of what you have to say. I absolutely devoured Woke Inc. when it first came out uh, as a former money manager. I think you were totally spot on in identifying the, the treachery that comes with the DEI and the ESG takeover of our capitalist model. And I think that you've been a godsend in terms of waking people up to that. Um, all of that being said, I wanted to put that up front to say I'm a fan, uh, but I would like to to dig into some areas of disagreement with the libertarian cool. community. Would you be open to that? Yeah, I am. And I just want to preface it by saying that I have for a long time, I had for a long time called myself a libertarian. Uh, oh, interesting. I yeah, I mean, I was, I was libertarian through and through all the way through my college years and beyond. Everyone on awesome. campus knew me as the libertarian guy, but <laughs> I've, I've, Part of my reason for – I haven't moved from the core principles, but I've expanded the scope of issues that concern me, if that makes sense. And, yeah. uh, you know, but we can go – let's go into the stuff you want to talk about, but I would love to get into the philosophy if you're interested in that as well. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Um, well, well, that's – I mean, I think that the, the biggest issue or the biggest platform plank that you've been uh, talking about that runs afoul of some of my, my libertarian brethren – uh, would be the the war on drugs. Um, most of us are of the belief that it has been 50 years of abject failure. If there is a victor in the war on drugs, it is the drugs. Uh, you have talked a lot about um, basically pressuring the Mexican government into dealing with the cartels to alleviate the, the fentanyl crisis. Uh, I'll be the first to admit fentanyl is a very dangerous drug, but I am of the opinion that 
that ultimately the uptick in the utilization of that drug is a consequence of the drug war more than it is a product of market demand. Um, what do you have to say to that? Yeah. So the first thing I will say is this is probably the single and dare I say probably only issue where I think there's a rift between me and most people who would traditionally call themselves libertarian in this country. But the rift is a lot smaller than you might think. I'm not a war on drugs guy. So if you listen precisely to what I've been talking about, I've been talking uniquely about fentanyl, right? This is not an issue I've been particularly vocal about. And part of the issue with fentanyl is it is closer to poisoning in many cases than it is a choice that people are making to use particular drugs. I've personally met with parents across the country whose kids thought they were taking Percocet or thought they were taking a different drug that was laced with fentanyl. That's new. We haven't mm -hmm. seen that in this country, and fentanyl is particularly deadly if taken in particular doses. Now, where's that coming from? There's an intentionality to it here. A lot of that fentanyl is flooding labs, effectively run by the Mexican drug cartels, from raw materials that come over from Wuhan. Now, that sounds, oh, is that conspiratorial China to Mexico, Wuhan? Well, how would you explain the fact that there are now 800-plus Chinese chemists south of our own border working with those drug cartels as well. So my commentary, first of all, the scope of it here is laser focused on fentanyl. I'm actually a path to legalization guy for a lot of different drugs and a path to reasonable decriminalization, even say for veterans being treated with PTSD. Many veterans are dying of fentanyl. I think fewer mm. would be dying if there was access to ayahuasca, if there was access to legal access to psychedelics more broadly. We could talk about have a reasonable conversation about ketamine and others. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm, I'm in that direction. I'm not a wow. war on drugs, old school, you know, let's get this done, failing war on drugs guy. Yeah. This is more of a form of poisoning. There's an intentionality to it. And I think that it is, and this is where we may have a different opinion. I think on the case of fentanyl, it is absolutely supply side driven, mm. more so than demand side driven, as may be the case for other drugs. And that's a case if, if, if there was, you know, fentanyl on a hamburger, nobody would call it an overdose. They'd call it what it is. It was poisoning. Mm -hmm. Well, if there's fentanyl and Percocet, nobody intended to take Percocet, but the kid got it, 16-year-old kid, through Snapchat without knowing that it had fentanyl in it and then takes it and dies. That's a different issue that needs to be dealt with differently. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's been a lot of histrionics about, uh, you know, characterizing, I think, my position here. And I think it's, this is a great opportunity to tell you exactly where I'm at. That's no, the I appreciate scope it. of our focus. No, I, I really appreciate it because uh, I was not privy to the your other area of the the war on drugs uh, opinion. So that 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 puts a lot of my fears at ease. Um, yeah. I, I think that there is one other area of disagreement or potential disagreement is the uh, you know the relations with China. You have described yeah. them as as our greatest threat, and and while I, I agree with you, they are certainly our greatest competitor. Um, I haven't seen much evidence that they have the a militaristic bent that makes them genuinely a threat. Uh, obviously, there can be surreptitious or, or secretive operations that are being ran that I'm not privy to, and perhaps there are, um, and perhaps the fentanyl is is part of it. I, I really don't know. Uh, but is it is it possible that we can have a future where we do not have this kind of bipolar world order that's that's always antagonistic, and and we have to have some sort of military buildup to to fend off the, the encroaching CCP, um, or is that kind of just an inevitability? I don't think it's an, ine an inevitability. I actually, most importantly, want to avoid war with China. 
Me too. I think I'm probably the single candidate in either political party that knows how to actually do it. Mm. So let me get to the reality of what's happening. I think China does. I mean, just look at what Xi Jinping has said internally, right? I think they absolutely view themselves as more than just in strategic competition with the United States. Part of the reason they want to go for Taiwan is they will then squat on the fountainhead of the global semiconductor supply chain, which the U.S. relies on for our modern way of life. And so there's a complicated challenge here of how we deter China from going after Taiwan, crucially, while avoiding war with China. Mm -hmm. And so I'm the only candidate in either party that's offered a very clear vision of how to do it. And ironically, that actually has to do with ending a different war, ending the war in Ukraine. So what I've said is I would end the Ukraine war and I won't go into the specifics of where I went with with uh, your friend, with Dave, I yeah. guess it was with Dave, who, who I was on with talking about NATO expansionism and the disaster that we've actually created in, I think, expanding NATO more after the fall of the USSR than it, when it existed. Watch that episode for that discussion. Yeah. But this is the linkage to China. The way I would actually deter war with China is end the war in Ukraine on terms that require Vladimir Putin to exit his military partnership with China. I think that's mm. actually the real threat is Russia and China are in a military partnership with one another. There's a 2001 treaty codified further and, and ramped up in a 2022 so-called no limits partnership. I think this is actually something that we should want to pull them apart from each other if we can actually do it in a peaceful way that not by creating a war, but by ending a different war that we're funding. So yeah. what I would say is freeze those current lines of control. No more USA to Ukraine. No NATO admission of Ukraine, which I think would be a disaster. Those are big enough wins for Putin that he gets something out of that trade. What do we get is that we pull Russia out of its military alliance with China. What have we then done? Xi Jinping's bet right now is that if Putin's in his camp, he's stronger to go after Taiwan. But if Putin's not in his camp, Xi Jinping then has to think twice about going after Taiwan. And that's how, by ending the Ukraine war, we also reduce, I think, dramatically the possibility that Xi Jinping goes for Taiwan until we've achieved semiconductor independence. And my view is if we have achieved semiconductor independence, then we should no longer go to war if China even does annex Taiwan, which for many of the war hawks is a thing you're not supposed to say. Yeah. So, so I think that I think it's less of I don't believe in sort of there's two poles to every issue. I think a lot of times there's a better third way to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's a big part of what I'm bringing to my foreign policy vision, to my economic vision. But I do believe that I'm the single candidate in any party, maybe, dare I say, even the Libertarian Party, who would clearly be able to deter China from going after Taiwan while avoiding war. And so I think that that's actually probably an area where we have common ground, even though For I sure. do believe that China is absolutely a threat to the United States right now. Interesting. Well, I, I, I appreciate the clarification. I, I think... Uh, I've actually said this before, and I, I don't mean to flatter you too much, but I think you're the most intelligent person that's ever ran for president in the, in the history of the United States. That. I'm serious, man. I think I, I think in some ways you may be too smart for the presidency, and, and maybe that'll be your that example. And, and I, I don't. I appreciate you saying that uh, as, a, as a compliment, but I think but I think I think people really have. I think it's a legitimate conversation to have, right? Because you don't want yeah. some intellectual sitting in the White House when you're actually supposed to run the sure. executive branch of government and lead a nation and get it done. And so, look, if I wanted to be, an, I've written three books in the last couple of years. If I wanted to continue writing books, great. That's a great outlet and an important role to play. But I think if you're looking at shutting down the administrative state, 
shutting down the regulatory state, that fourth branch of government. I think it's important that you have a president who has a first personal understanding of how to do it. If you want to end the war in Ukraine on that deal, it's important that I, as a president of the United States, have a first personal understanding. And here's why. The managerial class, the advisory class around the president, the people that come from the deep state on down, the federal bureaucracy, they will convince someone who doesn't have the first personal conviction to do it differently once they're actually in office. And so that's why I, I sort of reject the too intellectual or too smart criticism. I think, it's, I think we live in a moment where the threats to liberty that we face are complicated. And oh, it's going to require somebody who has a first personal conviction to see it through against the advice of the managerial class. And that's part of what calls me into this, man. Yeah, well, uh, I've been saying for the longest time, we need someone, not just with the intellect, but more, moreover, um, a guiding principle that's above self-interest, which severely lacks within our political class right now. Um, I agree. I'll just ask you bluntly, do you have that? Is this, is this about something bigger than yourself? It is. And I know that that would be the cheesy thing that every politician says. But just to be perfectly honest with you, I have not always been focused on service in my life. I believed in winning through the system of free market capitalism. I didn't grow up in wealth. My parents came to this country with almost no money. My dad faced layoffs at GE when we were growing up in Evendale, Ohio. And they all just wanted me to pursue a stable, steady career to make sure that we had job security. I wanted to say, okay, well, if this is how, you know, there's winners and losers in the game of American capitalism, I want to be the winner. And so when I graduated at the age of 22, I wasn't thinking about national service. I was thinking about how do I get ahead and live the American dream through free market capitalism without apology. And it turns out the way you win is you provide a product or service at greater value to the person who's receiving it than the cost it took you to provide it. I built multi-billion dollar companies. That was my journey. We're living a great life. I got married a few years ago. My first son, I got married in, in, in you know, eight years ago. We had our first son a few years ago. We have two kids Congrats. now at home. I'm writing books. I'm starting companies. I started Strive. You know, thank you for the shout out to Woke Inc., my first book. But I don't believe, and this goes to the intellectual versus doer point. I don't believe in just being an intellectual. I believe in doing things and getting things done. Clearly, the way I do it is by starting businesses, right? So I started Strive to compete against BlackRock. We're living the best version of our life. If you asked me a year ago, was I going to run for U.S. president? I would have said that would have been less pleasant than a sharp poke in the eye. <laughs> but I mean, to be honest with you, the process so far, I have to say, has actually been surprisingly fulfilling and we're having fun with it. But mm -hmm. if you asked me beforehand, I would have said this is not something that we, we care to do. But we're doing it because... You know, when I look myself in the mirror and ask myself, how are we actually going to pass on the American dream that I live to the next generation? How are we actually going to revive a national identity that's withering away to irrelevance? It's not going to be just by doing the things that I've done. I, I see an opportunity to lead a national revival in this country, to answer what it means to be an American. I'd be the youngest president ever elected if elected. I'm the first millennial to run for the GOP nomination for president. I think we can actually reach the next generation. You miss me at turning point, but young people across the board, I mean, we host an after party on Saturday night. You should have been there. It was, it was inspiring to me to see the energy of For young sure. people who are hungry to be American, to be patriotic about the values that set this nation into motion that exists, but other professional politicians are not 
able to land that vision with young Americans who are hungry for that cause. And so that's what pulled me into this. And you know what? I, I don't relish the idea of being the next president. I'll do it for two terms. The temptation for me would be to say, do it in one term, get out. Well, I'll do it for two terms. My kids are not going to be yet in high school by the time we're out of office in January. <laughs> That's crazy, man. That's incredible. It, but, but, but I'm eager to create that country and then move on to a different phase of my life so my kids can grow up in the same country, or at least a country that maybe is even better at espousing yeah. the principles than the one we had in the 1990s. But that's what pulls me into this, man. Well, I, I can relate to that because, you know, I was I ran a I was an entrepreneur, ran a company, and then I quit in the early stages of lockdown. And I was like, I need to speak out. I need to do something to try and course correct the treachery or the treacherous path that I feel that we're on. And and I see uh, an aspect of that in you. And I think that's why I've be, become a fan over the past couple of years. Um, I did want to ask because <clears throat> I was actually happy to hear you say during your speech at Turning Point, um, you know, you wish you could say that it's time to just come together and move forward, but we can't. We have to first deal with the injustices of 2020. Uh, you've already talked at length about January 6th. I, I'm actually more interested in getting your take on on what should be done about the COVID, COVIDians, the hysteria, the lockdowns, the, uh, the mandates, the firings, the unpersoning of people, um, Anthony Fauci in particular. Uh, how do we address this? Well, the biosecurity state that we saw emerge in 2020 is, I think, a great threat to liberty that we have to learn from because they're just doing it again the next time around with respect to the new religions that emerge, the climate religion, increasingly the Ukraine religion. It's the same movie that repeats itself. Yep. What, do you, what are some of the lessons? First thing is it is in times of emergency that we most or perceived or alleged emergency that we most need to defend free speech. If you had been allowed to say that we shouldn't have locked down those schools or locked down an economy, we would not have locked down those schools or locked down that economy, but you weren't. Literally, we're censored for saying it. If you had been allowed to say that the virus originated in a lab in Wuhan, we would have known that sooner than suppressing that truth and sowing public discord. If you had been allowed to say that these are risky vaccines that were developed at record speed in ways that defied even the usual norms for how a vaccine is developed, we would not be suffering the consequences of elevated rates of myocarditis or otherwise at the scale and level of public distrust that we now do. So lesson number one is free speech doesn't exist for the comfortable times. It exists for the uncomfortable times. No sacrifice there. Lesson number two, the next time a bureaucrat like Anthony Fauci reaches beyond his scope as an advisor to actually exercise public policymaking authority that he was never elected to exercise, if I'm the president, I will fire him. I will fire the people around him. I will fire the managerial industrial complex underneath him. That's what it's going to take. And, and we didn't, you know, I'm not blaming, you know, Trump for, for, for being a bad president or anything else. I think that there's a lot he did for this country and I've been plenty laudatory of it, but that's one learning that I would say I would do that differently the next time around. We have to shut down that administrative state. I think you can't tame that beast. I think you have to slay that beast, that administrative state, that Leviathan. And I think that's one of the great lessons. So if it's to simplify it, it's really easy, right? No lockdowns, no vaccine mandates, no mandates of any kind. Persuade someone on the merits. They can take whatever they want to take. And if not, then they don't. Mm -hmm. But that's easy because the next time this threat emerges, it's not going to be presenting itself in the same way. It might not even be a pandemic. It'll be something else. Yeah, it could be climate change. Who knows? Exactly. Whatever it is. And I think the number one principle is 
the administrative state needs to be put in its place, that is to say, shut down. And free speech is our path to truth. The path to truth runs not through censorship, but through more speech. And I think those are some of the principal takeaways that, frankly, they're not takeaways. They're true principles that have existed for the entirety of the American experiment. But we need to revive them in the face of the threats to liberty we face today. Indeed. And, uh, you know, many, many in my audience are, are more of the vindictive variety, um, not, not yeah. necessarily because we want vengeance, but per, I think, moreover, that we would like to see um, accountability. A warning, uh, well, accountability, but a warning shot to, to future bureaucrats that think that this is an acceptable thing to do. I, I've, I've lamented consistently over the past few years that, you know, we have governors and, and even presidents, Joe Biden, um, who have done and passed completely unconstitutional dictates that were eventually fortunately overturned thanks to Trump's, uh, you know, Supreme Court picks. But how can we, how can we actually prevent that level of tyranny, <clears throat> that level of tyranny without waiting for the Supreme Court for maybe two, three, four years, we have to languish under that, that, you know, totalitarianism essentially. I do think the next presidential election offers us the best opportunity to actually do it. Mm. I think we have one executive branch in this country. And the travesty is that today the people, even the person we elect to run the government, the executive branch of it, does not run the executive branch of the government. It is a group of unelected bureaucrats in that managerial class and in that federal administrative state. I understand more deeply than anybody who has run for president in the last 30 years how to actually shut it down. I intend to see that through. We could go through the details of it here, but it would probably put your audience to sleep from 5 <laughs> USC 3302 that gives the US president the power to set the authority for the Office of Personnel Management, the, the rules and regulations. The 1977 Presidential Reorganization Act, which I will use to reorganize the federal government, shutting down the Department of Education to FBI, to IRS, to ATF. We go down the list of how we will use legal authority, existing legal authority, to shut down that government, reduce the size of the federal bureaucrat count by over 75%. But, but I think that this is what it's actually going to take, and this is our opportunity to do it, Clint. And my view is, I get it if you're a libertarian, I share your instincts in common. I, as I said before, I'm a bone-deep libertarian in many ways myself. I happen to care about issues that go beyond just the relationship between the state and the individual that have nothing to do with it, but have to do with culture. I'm interested in those issues of leadership too. That's why I call myself a conservative. But the reality is, even if you agree with 80% of what I say, I think I'm the best shot that a libertarian has for seeing that through, not just as some principle from the sidelines, but from an ally in the White House who's actually implementing it. And six months ago, or even four months ago, five months ago, when we started this campaign, it might've been you know, laughable to think, I, you know, I have a legitimate shot. I didn't think so. I'm not surprised by where we are. But the reality is I'm polling at third in the entire Republican field right now when much of this country still doesn't know who I am. I think that we are going to win this election. I think we have a chance to win this election. Love it. I think we're going to win states with New Hampshire, like New Hampshire, counting on libertarians to say, all right, if I agree with 90% of what he says, but this is a guy who can actually see that through. And I'm committing to put people who have our kinds of instincts, Clint, into positions like the Office of Personnel Management, the Office of Management and Budget, the plumbing of the federal government that are fundamentally anti-government in their bones. I want to see this through. I don't want this to be the stuff of podcasts. I want this right. to be the stuff of how our executive branch is run. 
And I think you want to know how to not wait for judicial appointments. Get me in there in the 2024 election. I think we're actually going to do it. And that's yeah. how we get the job done. Now, that's a pitch, brother. That's a pitch. I like it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you talk 75, 80% cutting of the bureaucrats. You talk ending the IRS and the FBI and all these other. I mean, this is this is Ron Paul stuff. I mean, it really is. And and I, I, I think that to Dr. Paul myself, I mean, right. I think reform of the Fed. I, I actually want to see this through. He introduced the ideas. He threw the pass. I'm catching it and actually run it to the end zone. Right. I think we can actually do it. Look at where look at my trajectory. I think this is my this is my frustration with libertarians. I just could get real with you, man. Is <laughs> go ahead. Too satisfied with just sitting around and pontificating. I share. I'm an I, I'm an academic guy. I like the pontification. Right. But now we have a chance to see this through to actually put a president of the United States in the White House that will shut down the unconstitutional fourth branch that is the single greatest threat to liberty today. Step up and do it in a way that doesn't involve virtue signaling to, well, he's not running in the Libertarian Party. Do you want to get this done or not is the question. And if you do, we're going to agree on probably 90 plus percent of our convictions. But we have to move beyond the academic world to also not compromise on those principles, but to actually translate them to action. That's what moves me in this race. And, and I hope more of you come along and join the movement. And if you do, I think it's going to be the difference between us winning in a moral mandate versus winning in some narrowly fought election or, or, or not winning at all. And I think I'm going to, amongst the entire Republican field, be the best ally of the libertarian cause in seeing this through when we succeed. And I think with libertarian support, I don't think we just win the general election. I think we win it in a landslide. And that's what I'm looking to deliver. Awesome, man. I, I wanted to ask you briefly before we wrap up. I got um, to rock and roll pretty soon, but yeah. Yeah, yeah I know. Um, it, so August of 2011, Barack Obama issues an executive order that implements diversity, equity, inclusion in all of the federal departments. Uh, Donald Trump undoes that via executive order late into his term. And then day one of Joe Biden's presidency, he reinstates it. I would like to know, is there is there something that can be done that can prevent this, this ping-ponging of uh, you know, woke Marxism yep. that, that is in our federal government. So, so my view on executive orders is there's a lot of existing executive orders that I'm just taking a pen and crossing a line through. Mm -hmm. But you want to get to the root cause. You have to shut down the bureaucracy that creates the demand for this in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but this no, is the sense. cancer. This yeah. is the root cause. It comes from the bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. that tee up that executive order for the president to sign shut down the bureaucracy, shut down the bureaucracy, shut down the deep state. <laughs> that is the answer. The president has the authority to do it. The question is, does he have the spine to do it? So far, we haven't had a president who has one. This is my reason for doing this. I want to get in there, drop the mic, get out, let my kids go to high school in a country where we have three branches of government again, not four. And that's my mission in this. Put me in that position. I'm going to get that done. Love it. Well, go ahead and tell my audience where they can support your campaign. Uh, I just yeah. wanted to say real quick, uh, big fan of what you're doing. I think you're an, an incredible addition to the political landscape, and I, I wish you continued success moving forward. I appreciate it, Clint. It's Vivek2024.com. It's my first name, V-I-V-E-K, 2024.com. If you want to give a buck, great, give a buck. If you want to join as a volunteer, help spread our message. Where I would love help is actually reaching libertarians especially in those early states, but frankly, in all the states as well, to 
you know, take off the labels, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, doesn't matter. What principles do we stand for? Mm -hmm. And anybody who's down for that, we'd love them in our movement. So thank you, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Get back on the campaign trail, brother. Crush it, all right? We got to roll. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, as you can tell, I only had 30 minutes with Vivek. Um, I want to thank him again for his time. And I want to thank you guys for tuning in. If you want to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. With that being said, I want to give my feedback. Um, You know, I'm still... I'm still, maybe I'm just too blackfilled, man. Maybe I'm too jaded that it just, it's challenging for me to believe in a guy that he's that good, but he is really good. So I guess I'm just, I'm trying to like convince myself to not be so jaded and be like, no, I think this guy might be the real deal. Um, you know, time will tell, but that is, that's the case with all, all politicians. Uh, you just never know if I knew him personally, if I had known him for a decade, I could, I could assess differently, but having only known him, you know, from a distance and having, you know, followed each other on Twitter for a couple months, that's just not enough. It's not enough for me to say for sure. Um, but I think he makes a really compelling case. I think that, that in terms of libertarian ideals actually being implemented at the federal level, he's probably right. He probably does, uh, serve that purpose or that role or give us the best opportunity of that, of any candidate that's currently running. Tell me I'm wrong. I, I don't think I am. I, I, I mean, we saw what Trump did. <laughs> Draining the swamp is not exactly what he got accomplished. Um, you know, RFK Jr., the, the gun grabbing stuff is too, is too concerning. Um, he still kind of frames the, the Ukraine war in a way that, uh, you know, it's a defense of the good guys versus the bad. I don't think it's it's that way. He's 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 reasonable when it comes to the NATO expansion and things like that. I, I do like a lot of what RFK has to say, um, especially with his inquisition of Anthony Fauci. I find that extraordinarily compelling, of course. But he is a Kennedy and he is a Democrat, and you know he's come out on the side of unions and other things that I ultimately <clears throat> don't really agree with. So as of now, Vivek is the guy. I mean, it, I, I don't, I don't think that it's really even a close contest. Just being totally honest with you guys, um, that's not to say that I, I am not still very hesitant and very skeptical of his, of his, uh, his opinion on how to address the fentanyl crisis. Uh, my opinion would be that if he were to do all of those things, and had we had enough time, I would have dug into this deeper, but I didn't, so I'll do it now. Um, if he were to do all of those things in terms of past illegalization or decriminalization, that the the market demand or the utilization from drug dealers in America when it comes to fentanyl would decrease on its own uh, simply because it would no longer make sense to be cutting drugs with fentanyl and things of that nature. Um, so I think that that could probably alleviate the need for some sort of militaristic threat against the Mexican drug cartels. Um, I also think that... Uh, you know, having his, I, I gotta, I gotta be honest, his, his opinion on China was pretty good. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I would have, if I had, I, in fact, I don't feel as if they are that, that big of a threat to America. And I, and even in, on an economic scale, like I feel like if we were to address much of the financial uh, malfeasance, starting with the Federal Reserve, starting with the government largesse, the DEI, the ESG, everything that has kind of ruined our economy, we probably wouldn't need to have any sort of antagonistic relationship with China. Um, they are a centrally planned economy. If we function as a true free market, we should eat their lunch. 
And I think that that's the way that you defeat the CCP. You don't defeat them by becoming them. You defeat them by uh, being American. <laughs> like the, the OG shit, you know? So, um, but I think that his, his opinion on the, uh, the Taiwan issue, trying to avoid war, war with both China and Russia, obviously that's music to my ears. Uh, I wish it was abolishing the, the Federal Reserve as opposed to reforming. Uh, but I do very much like the fact that he wants to abolish 10 three-letter agencies. That's awesome. That is not stuff that uh, any Republican that's had a shot at winning, uh, aside from Ron Paul, briefly, um, has ran on. So he's a very interesting guy. I don't, I don't know what else to say. He's a very interesting guy. He's, he's going to be uh, he's skyrocketing in the polls right now. Absolutely skyrocketing. Crushing it was on with Tucker on Friday and then did turning point on Saturday and he is getting raucous applause everywhere he goes. So I think it's very important that, you know, whether you're sold or not, uh, you, you tune in, you watch, you see what he's about and you decide for yourself because, uh, you know, as much as I would like to believe that we can just use some sort of decentralized revolution, peaceful revolution to, to uh, address all that ails, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that we can actually get through this without major, major collapse economically. World War III, the list goes on and on. If we don't have some assistance at the federal level to try and diminish the federal state. Um, so he's he makes a very compelling case. I'm going to have to think about this. If you guys can't tell, I'm, I'm genuinely mulling this over as I talk to you. I'm like trying to figure out how I feel about it all. Oh, uh, God. What an interesting time to be alive, huh? <laughs> Anyways, um, if you want to support my work, as always, go to libertylockdown.locals.com or go to toplobster.com, pick up some shirts. And uh, last but very, very not least, you can uh, check out my show over on Fountain. It's a uh, way that you can support using Bitcoin. And you actually, I think you get paid in, in sats for listening to podcasts over there. So check out Fountain app. It's on all the all the uh, app stores. God, what a, that was cool. That was cool. I enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, make sure you hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, leave a comment, tell me what you thought. Tell me if you trust him. If you don't, uh, if you think he's uh, a con artist or if he's the real deal, if he, cause God, if he's a con artist, he's good, man. <laughs> he's really good. If he is, uh, I don't know though. And, uh, and share the show. All right. Right here. Peace. Oh, Oh, before I get out, uh, he's on with uh, Josie, the redheaded libertarian tonight on Twitter spaces. If you want to check her out, it's TRHL official right here. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?